This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Welcome to the Ether Review. Today I have Pale Brandgard, one of the lead developers on Uport, who also has an interesting history in the early age of search engines. Thanks for joining me, Pele. Thank you very much. I suppose the most interesting place to start really is in this uh, the long forgotten age of, uh, of search, pre-Google as I understand it. Um, so what was your involvement in uh, search back in those early days? And what was, your, what was the path that led you to develop on Ethereum? Um, well, I started out uh, as the as the webmaster for Alta Vista, uh, and that was uh, it. wasn't strictly speaking the webmaster for the search part of it, but Digital decided they wanted to make Alta Vista into a business, and I became the corporate webmaster. This was uh, early '96. I got into that basically because back then there were really very few web developers, and I've been already working on on the web for two years. So uh, yeah, so I've seen all the early standards, you know, things like like the internet take off from very early days, and then I got into financial cryptography, which was going on roughly the same time it was starting to take off. Um, so in Anguilla in the Caribbean, uh, there used to be a conference every year uh, called Financial Cryptography, and that became a meeting place for what people now would call the blockchain people. But this started, I think, in 96. And um, for a while there, uh, Anguilla was the center of what people nowadays call cryptocurrencies in the world. It's a very small island with 7,000 inhabitants. And uh, at that point, there was probably about 10 different cryptocurrency startups. So what was the difference between cryptocurrency in those days and, and cryptocurrency, or let, let me rephrase that, what was the difference between financial cryptography in those days and financial cryptography today, as we know it in the form of cryptocurrency? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the, the big interest came from, there's there a combination of two things. There was the, uh, there was the cypherpunks, which um, was basically the, the crowd that wanted to, a very libertarian crowd that, that built around PGP. And doing uh, using cryptography for for freedom against uh, you know against uh, the government listening in and all of those kinds of things. So there was a very strong pro crypto movement going on in the nineties nineties. And at the same time, actually in the eighties, uh, there was a very interesting um, patent developed called um, uh, that's known as a DigiCash patent patent, and it allowed you to do offline digital uh, transactions, well, half offline. So you, so you can actually do the transactions offline and then confirm them uh, online afterwards, if I remember correctly. So that excitement, and there are a lot of people working kinds of things. And during that time, it's actually when hash cash and uh, smart contracts and all of those kinds of things were, the concepts were developed. So I was specifically interested in using it for creating uh, cryptographic 
representations of companies, and I was working with the um, company uh, company's house in Anguilla to create cryptographic rep representation of offshore companies there. Then pressure came from the UK to to um, require stricter identification of people who owned those offshore companies. And we weren't at that point able to do that. So I switched over to, to something called, uh, called DAOs. I used to call them news or network, net economic units. That was, that was my version of it. Um, so it was basically a way of doing a cryptographic comp uh, company. Of course, we didn't have the blockchain. We didn't have Ethereum. Ethereum solved so many issues that we were battling with back then. But we also solved a lot of issues that I think the Ethereum community is just starting to, to deal with right now. Yeah, so, such as, as uh, what does a smart contract mean? What does a contract mean? And how do you interpret a contract from a real world and from a, a cryptographic and, uh, and machine point of view? So what I'd like to do, okay, this is uh, this is a great opportunity because I've been working on a uh, on an infographic about smart, what is a smart contract, and um, and I find sudden I found quite quickly that there were quite a few different interpretations of not only what the phrase smart contract means, but what people specifically feel is important about a smart contract, even if they uh, even if they agree. At a high level about what the what exactly they're talking about, um, and so I, I may as well read a few of these out and see what you uh, how you feel about them. Probably the most basic: an Ethereum program, a self-enforcing contract, a program which can't be shut down, a computer function which can serve a function similar to a speech act, something which combines both human language and computer code, and a computer program which can be trusted to run without the user simultaneously having to trust any other individual. So, what what do you think about those uh, those definitions, and how and what what is your conception of what a smart contract is? My definition of a smart contract, which is um, not exactly the same as the Ethereum definition, is is based on Nick Szabo's original work on it. So, it's basically a self enforcing contract and. But we have the word contract in it, and contract actually has a very specific meaning, both in business and in legal uh, legal terms. Where the Ethereum version of a smart contract for me is is probably what we would what that, what we used to call an agent, which is basically a piece of code that sits and and waits for something and runs unattended. But this Ethereum smart contract can also be an actual smart contract. It could also be a contract. Uh, well, it can be part of a contract. Um, see, see I, I, I think what a lot, of people, a lot of people misunderstand what contracts are, and I, I think it's very important to understand those, like what a contract is. Because people, people in, the, um, in the crypto community often think that contracts is this government-enforced, government-invented kind of thing. But it's actually a... It's something that came out of, you could call it like an open source community of business people over thousands of years. And uh, what it really is, it's not actually a piece of paper, it's not a piece of code, but it's actually a, a relationship where, with multiple parties where each party has some kind of duty, some kind of obligation, and then some kind of right in exchange. That's what a contract is. 
It's actually it's more an ephemeral concept. So if you want to make a piece of code, a smart contract, it also still has to embody those kinds of things. Otherwise, it's not a, con a contract. And it's fine if it doesn't, because it's fine having a, a piece of Ethereum code that, that isn't a contract. There's nothing wrong with it just because that it's in Ethereum speak, it's called a smart contract. But it's just, if we want to call it a contract, it has to be, you know, it has to have certain properties. And these properties have to be understood. Okay, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But yeah, I mean, some people say, uh, or I hear some people say sometimes that uh, smart contract is an unfortunate name for these Ethereum computer programs. Would you agree with that? Yes. What, what would you feel is more appropriate? Um, I like the term agent or, or you, yeah, just agent simple, which, which is just basically a, a piece of code that sits in, and just waits and does something rather based on, on interaction. And this is quite, this fits quite well with the idea of both contracts and users being, uh, being equal citizens on the Ethereum network, the both sources of agency. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is good. I think we, uh, we've made some pretty interesting progress here. The other thing is uh, DigiCash. Can you tell me a bit about DigiCash? Uh, is that what was originally conceived in the mid-'80s? Yes, it was invented by uh, Chaum, um, who uh, was a uh, super smart uh, American um, researcher who was working in Holland, and he came up with this uh, concept of blinded signatures. And uh, I'll say, while I, I understand the, the basics of it, it's, it's the actual mechanics of it is a little bit over, over my, my uh, mathematical knowledge. But it's, it was originally, uh, the, some of the first applications was for use in parking and parking uh, machines and using smart cards and also for toll, paying tolls in Holland, as far as I remember. Then when the company was created, they started partnering with lots of banks. So they were partnering in the U.S. with, um, I forget the name of the bank in the U.S., but Deutsche Bank was the largest bank that they were working with. And they had, I believe, seven, several millions of millions users in the late 90s in, uh, in Germany. And there were lots of banks that worked with them. They made a lot of mistakes, and uh, there's some pretty good articles outlining exactly what went wrong with DigiCash. But... The biggest problem was that it was a patent and they wouldn't really let anyone use it. So there's not a lot of other work that could be done with it besides, well, besides what they were doing. What was unique about DigiCash that, because I sometimes hear people say that that was where the, I'm, I'm sounding a bit like Donald Trump saying some people say, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I hear, some, I hear it said that that was the advent of the emergence of the cypherpunks and the cryptocurrency movement. So what was it specifically about DigiCash that, uh, that makes people, leads people to, to have that opinion? Well, it, it uh, inspired uh, like a whole generation of us to, to work with the field. It, because initially, most people came into the crypto sphere just essentially for, for actual crypto, like basically protecting communication. But then we realized that we could actually you know, we could create money, we could create contracts, we could do all kinds of other things. And DigiCash was really the, the origin for, for all of that movement. Um, there, were, there were a lot of people with, with many different kinds of ideas there, but, but we, it, was, it was very useful because we, none, 
nothing really practical. I mean, virtually everyone who worked on it back then stopped working on it. But PayPal actually came out of that same same movement. Uh, at the both Max Lefkin and and um, Peter Thiel were at these early uh, conferences where we were discussing all of these kinds of things. And PayPal started out kind of like a digicash kind of system for cryptographically sending money between uh, Palm Pilots. And um, only later did they get rid of rid of that when when people started realizing that the crypto part is only one part of, of what makes a payment because there, there are all kinds of other contractual issues behind behind uh, payments that crypto at that point couldn't solve on its own okay and so is this where the uh, is this where smart contracts come in yes smart contracts is, is one is one way of solving it but uh, but for 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 example, for uh, creating, for issuing currency, like you could, you could issue currency using DigiCash, for example. But what does that currency mean? Bitcoin was the first kind of, the first real um, cryptographic payment system that had its own inherent value. But before then, we had to issue currency that was based on something. So, so similar to what, what people call tokens nowadays. So basically, you had to issue something based on dollars or based on gold. So most things back, back then were, was issued based either on gold or on, or on dollars. So we had to like figure out what does that mean? So if I transfer something to you, what does that mean? Because I could just make up, just like you know, we could create an Ethereum token very easily today um, and issue it. But if we don't know what that token means, it doesn't really have any, any meaning, which is also like, you know, why there, there was a lot of issues after the DAO. Like, what, what does it mean? You know, what does a contract mean? What does ownership of this mean? And all of these kinds of things. These are, these are the kind of things that we did do a lot of work on back then that, that I think we as a community, community need to work a lot more on now. And smart, smart contracts essentially can, can put a lot of that into practice. But if it's, if, if it's based on some kind of other value, some kind of value managed externally, it's very hard to do it on its own, like in a smart contract. I know there are, there are people working on stable coins and various other kinds of things that can do that. Uh, and that is one way of doing it. But, you, but if you issue a token, it has to mean something. Someone has to issue it. One token has to be worth some right somewhere. And then someone has to have that obligation of what that right is. And so something needs to bridge the crypto and... Uh... The crypto and legacy contractual worlds, and that and that's actually a lot of work's been done on that. Again, uh, my my old friend Ian Grigg, he came up with a concept back in the '90s of Ricardian contracts, which is a basically a human and machine readable contract. Uh, originally, was designed as for asset issuance do- documents. So basically, as the foundation for someone issuing a token. So this would basically set out. One unit of this token is called, say, a gram of gold. The gold is held this and this place. This and this company is issuing. This and this company is responsible for auditing it. All of those kinds of things was in that document. And then there was a piece of code that read that contract and would handle processing of it based on, based on that contract. And I think that's a really important part of it. It, it doesn't mean... It doesn't take importance away from a smart contract, but what it does is that it helps bridge the world of the smart contracts with the real world. I feel like we're rediscovering this, the work that you guys did 
in the in the nineties today. Yes, but a lot of us who were there are still working on on this. So Ian Grigg now who came up with this concept originally is now working with uh, R3 and uh, Barclays issued has issued uh, Ricardian contracts on top of their network. And there's a lot of work done in the financial industry to bring these Ricardian contracts in because these concepts make a lot of sense to people in the financial industry. So I, th I think the, the big problem right now is in the Ethereum world, there, there are a lot of very enthusiastic people with very little knowledge about financial and legal applications, but who may understand the technology itself, but not understand, you know, the, the legal and financial implications of the technology. So this is, this is where, like, I'm, tr I'm trying to, on my blog, I'm trying to write articles to try and, and, and help people understand this. I've also made a proposal for a very simple standard where you could add Ricardian contracts to uh, any Solidity smart contract. Um, it's a project I call Solid Terms. It would it'd be very easy to integrate into it, and I'm, I'm planning on doing a lot more work on that in the future. It's uh, it's interesting you mentioned that Ian Grigg was working for R3 because this idea of uh, of both human and machine readable contracts reminds me of my admittedly shallow understanding of their language Corda. Yes. Um, do, do you know anything about that? Uh, I haven't looked at it in details. I, I have started skimming some of the information that they started publishing about it, and it, it looks very interesting. And I, and I think us in the Ethereum community, we need to do something similar or, or, or work with them. And, and I know there, there are a group of us who are, are, are trying to, to do that. I'm, I'm working uh, informally with a bunch of lawyers who are very interested in the field on, on, on some of these concepts, for example. And, um, but I would like there to be some more formal group on it. But, but that, that will come when we start defining things, things better. Are there potentially unforeseen consequences to, to equating uh, spoken language statements with machine-readable statements? I mean, is this uh, because we, we think of machine readable statements as being very, uh, very concise and rigid, and the spoken word is extremely flexible, necessarily so, especially in, uh, the, especially in its use in constructing contracts. I feel like this may lead to a very different kind of agreement than we're used to in, uh, you know, in, in legacy contracts, which aren't, which aren't constructed with, uh, with spoken word. Yes, there, there's definitely potential to to a lot of change in in how contracts are are interpreted uh, because of smart contracts. I mean, just just the fact that the enforcement of a smart contract is run in code, but then what you have is is with with traditional contracts, you have thousand years of contract law and and procedures and and knowledge about what happens. If things don't go right, and and those kinds of things will still be applicable even if the smart contract is enforced in code. So, for example, if I if I go in and create a code, publish the code to do to basically, and you know, well, I can't think of a good example right now. But if 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 I go in and 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 and, and issue a, a contract personally, and there's some kind of problem with the code, even if the code enforced uh, what I didn't mean it to do, I would still be personally legal, uh, personally liable for the actual contract because these, this code itself is not 
the actual contract. The, con so the, there's con a the contract itself is kind of just an, it's a, I, I call it a, a relationship with, with, uh, with obligations. So the code is the enforcement mechanism, but it, it's not the whole picture because ultimately it's, there's, a, uh, there's some interpretation that's important. So if the, all this work was done in the, in the 90s, why was there this apparent dark age in the 2000s? What, what happened was that uh, in, the, in the 90s, there was the dot-com era, and there was a lot of money being thrown at, at this technology. Uh, most people have forgotten this, but Microsoft, Digital, uh, Hewlett-Packard, um, as I mentioned, Deutsche Bank, and, and a lot of these companies were actually investing in, in this. IBM had several projects as well going with cryptocurrencies. And the, the, the main target for them, like for the big money, was for micropayments. Everyone thought micropayments was a solution for monetization. And of course, that didn't really take off. So when the dot-com uh, bust happened, pretty much all investment in that just died off overnight. Then the other factor where was there was 9-11, there was the um, renewed force against uh, 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 money laundering. Those kinds of things started really affecting us. So I was in a startup in Panama. I, I had I worked on my technology, which was like my my proto smart contract, proto blockchain kind of plat platform was called uh, Nuclear. And I was working in Panama from 2002 to 2004 on a startup for doing payments down there. And uh, it was really, really difficult to do, primarily because of the paranoia of the Panamanian government with anything that could be looked at as money laundering. This, this may sound strange with all the news that's been recently about Panama, but the banks yeah, and all of that was always complicated back then. So that kind of stopped the whole business. So there were a lot of people in the, you know, 10 years ago who was releasing code, but everyone was scared to actually run it. So there's a lot of old crypto projects on, on GitHub, but that people threw out there, but no one actually ran it, ran any systems based on them. I'm, I'm trying to, so people just kind of left these things hanging in the air, uh, waiting for something to reignite the, the space. So for example, I uh, s stopped focusing so much on crypto and focused more on agreements. So I, I had a startup called Agree To, which is a way for, hu for human beings to create and negotiate agreements online. And uh, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was an example of the kind of thing that I was doing. Ian Grigg, he continued straight through the whole era working on his, on his stuff. Um, but it really took Bitcoin to create renewed interest in the field. So what does this tell us? I mean, for a lot of people, Bitcoin came out of the blue. It just, uh, it just, there's no, they don't see that there was a, a history behind that. And, I, and it's understandable when you think that there was this extended, this extended hiatus in the field. But what does this tell us about technology that this, all of this work was apparently forgotten, uh, certainly, or the, the masses were unaware of it, and then all of a sudden there's this, uh, we're rediscovering this, uh, this technological legacy. Um, th does, the, does that question make sense? Hello. Hello, hello. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, 
Sorry about that. I'm tethered on LTE right now. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Third world. So. Oh, well, right. what can you do? Oh, yeah. So, so my, my question was, uh, what does this tell us about our awareness of technology um, or, or the development of technologies or technologies that exist? Or even maybe I could rephrase it and say, what does this tell us about our perception of technological advancement that you guys did all this work in the 90s and we're only rediscovering it now? And there is this general perception that that Bitcoin emerged just out of the ether. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it, it is kind of, uh, it, it is a kind of weird thing that, that people have forgotten about this. But, but, I mean, Bitcoin itself is based on, on technology that came during that period. There, there are a lot of different things that, like um, hash cash and those kinds of things that were developed in the, back during the 90s and that were presented at, at the FC conference in Anguilla. Um, smart contracts itself uh, from Nick Savo, which was, of course, the inspiration for smart contracts in Ethereum, was also came out of that movement. So I think the people who 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 are working deep in the technology, they do understand there was all of this going on before. It's more a um, uh, it's more an issue with um, uh, what's it called with with the general public who has forgotten about it. And it's interesting, there was actually a lot of news in, in the tech press back in the 90s. But of course, that's long gone because it kind of disappeared with all the other dot-com stuff. You know, um, <laughs> some people have forgotten about, about it. It almost feels like there was an age, there was an age, the dot-com boom was, was this prehistoric civilization where all of this work was done and then forgotten. And then this, this new civilization has emerged on top. But disconnected from the uh, from the old, do you know? Do you know what I mean? That that's like the feeling that I get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's definitely some something like that. But you know, people always uh, uh, like in the computer science world, people always joke say that there's always like new generation discovering Lisp, which is this you know a, a pr- computer language that's been around since the '60s and uh, or maybe even the '50s, but and that's and actually some of the ideas in that even continue on in uh, in the way that the Ethereum VM works. <laughs> um, but every the, every new generation discovers it as if it was their idea. <laughs> so, but but and and also every generation has to make their own mistakes. So you know I I can like I tried I tried desperately to shout you know about the DAO you know different risks about the DAO and, and no one took me and other people serious about it because I, I guess people have to, each generation has to make their own mistakes, right? We had plenty of mistakes. We had plenty of, of insanity going on back, back in the day. So we made a lot of mistakes. There, there was tons of, tons of problems. So uh, people went to jail. There was money lost. There were Ponzi schemes. There were all kinds of stuff back in the early generation. So we learned a lot from those kinds of things. And, um, and now this new generation has to, unfortunately, maybe learn some of these ma- mistakes on their own. But I hope they can also learn a bit from, from some of the lessons that we learned back then. Bringing, it, uh, bringing us to the, to the present, uh, you've worked your way through so many areas of the, 
of the cryptocurrency, crypto finance, smart contract field. And now you find yourself developing Uport. How is it that you see Uport and I guess just generalized digital identity or cryptographic identity fitting into this whole milieu? Well, uh, digital identity is it's an important part for, for adding uh, a human factor to, to smart contracts. Um, like it's, it's very easy for us crypto nerds to think that we can all live in a world where we're all represented by, you know, by uh, public keys and that's what we are, you know, and, we, and, and that's, of course, kind of what the Bitcoin economy is, is based on. But if you actually want to start doing different kinds of business uh, with, with people, it's a good idea to know who people are. Um, and, and so I, th I think what Uport is doing is, is, in some respect, adding a human factor to, to Ethereum. And that part can then be used by smart contracts to, to create much better, safer interactions in the future. And then with the human-readable component that you're working on, uh, the Ricardian mm -hmm. component, um, then we can map the interactions on the Ethereum network to real-life legal obligations. Yes. So, so then we have all three parts of it. So you could have a, a loan, like Ether loan, for example, where each party is identified as real people. Um, or as a financial institution and a, a person, or two people, or, or, or multitude of people, whatever. Uh, and then you could have a legal document. And all of these things are now, you know, they, they can now be, get to court if that's ever needed. So sometimes court isn't the only, you know, the, the only dispute resolution system there is, but most dispute resolution systems depend on some human interpretation and some human identification of the parties. And, and now we have these kinds of things. And, um, and in some respect, those may be for, for the vast majority of contracts, at least in the next five, 10 years, this may actually be a lot more important than, you know, the, the solidity code that does something behind it. So with this, we could actually maybe have fairly simple and clean solidity code and learn from our mistakes with that and then depend on some kind of human intervention in the back, just in case things mess up. All right, actually, that's, that's a pretty, uh, pretty good summary of uh, and an, a new perspective on, on this whole thing. All right, cool. Well, I mean, we might as well just leave it at that and, and make it a short show. This is, uh, this, I might get this out. Let's see, who, did I, who do I have next? Zuko. I've got uh, Zuko on. Okay. So I might get this out. Yeah, yeah, it's Z going to be incredible. Zuko was also part of the early generation. So you can ask him about it as well, because I know Suko from Anguilla from these conferences back in the nineties as well. Awesome! I'm going to bring that up. It's uh, these will um, mm -hmm. oh these these will actually play in order. So <laughs> well, they'll be played a week apart. They'll be uh, they'll uh, they'll they were recorded within well back to back basically. Great. Well, I'll send uh, I'll send Zuko your regards. Thanks a bunch for coming on the show, Pele. And um, are there any links that you like you'd suggest people should follow up on? I, uh, if, if people are interested in what I'm talking about, uh, I blog about it. At, um, and my blog is blog.stakeventures.com. And that's S-T-A-K-E ventures.com, which comes from stakeholder. So, because oh, I believe it's important that 
for us to think about the stakeholders of any kind of project. So I've always used that term in anything I do. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> You're welcome. Bye. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview. Thank you.